I'd like to start our Sunday mornings by saying welcome to all of you who may be joining us for the first time here in our sanctuary or if you're joining us online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan and today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 9 and the topic is hell is unleashed. So if you were here hoping for a happy study today, um, well, we have salvation in Christ so it's always a happy study. But you know, the topic of devils and demons is uh, something that in our culture is often propped up by comedians and philosophers and even movies and entertainment to taunt Christians for their professions of faith, to, to mock them. You know, the very concept of a supernatural being of any kind being real is something that's just mocked by many in the world. You know, some will mock Christians by saying we believe in the big daddy in the sky when we talk about God. And so the ideas of the supernatural, God, Satan, angels, demons, are relegated in many ways to the spheres of entertainment and mythology. You know, the doubt of devils and demons being real is even something that affects professed believers, professed Christians. In an older study from 2009, Barna did a study where they um, uh, looked at 1,871 professed Christians, and they asked them some questions about their beliefs, questions about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Satan, and demons. And in this uh, study they did, they found that 78% of these professed Christians, which is going to be weird, only 78%, but said that they do believe that God is the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who rules the world today. And that's a fairly core belief of <laughs> Christians, right? Um, but only 6 in 10 said that they believe Satan is a real being and not just some metaphorical symbol of evil. You know, as humans, we can tend to disregard what we can't understand. We tend to disregard that which we can't wrap our minds around, and we're inclined to just um, write off things that, that, that we cannot see. And, and sometimes people say, you know, if I could just see angels and demons, if I could see God, then I would believe. But just because something is mysterious, just because something is a little bit beyond our understanding doesn't automatically mean it isn't real. The author C.S. Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other error is to believe and then to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, as believers, who read and study the word of God, the truth is Satan and demons are real. They are very real. They are a very real restless evil that is constantly looking for ways to destroy lives. And during the tribulation period that we've been studying in Revelation, any who doubt that truth will be sorely and severely corrected. Revelation 9 brings us to what many consider to be the midpoint of the tribulation. There's many different views on the, the layout of Revelation. Some uh, look at the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls as 21 consecutive judgments, and there's a lot of uh, um, support for that. Some look at the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls as a retelling 
of the same seven-year tribulation period, and there's some merit to that view as well. But most agree that by the time you get to Revelation 9, or at least the events of Revelation 9, are describing the midpoint of the tribulation. You know, the tribulation period, which is spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, often referred to as the 70th week of Daniel, the midpoint is when the tribulation becomes what's called the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of this seven-year period of God's judgment coming upon the earth, a period that was spoken of in great detail by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. This last three and a half years is preceded by what we've studied so far with the church being raptured out of the world and then God beginning to bring his judgment upon the world for its sin and its rejection of him. This judgment that came upon the world itself, creation itself, as well as the inhabitants of the world. We saw this judgment being poured out by the seven seals being broken and the first four trumpet judgments that we've looked at so far. In Daniel chapter 9, it paints more of the picture of what's taking place during this period as the Antichrist comes on the scene, which we saw in the first seal being broken. At that time, he makes a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel, allowing them to rebuild their temple and to resume their uh, sacrifices in the temple. It was during this first three and a half years of the tribulation period that we saw 144,000 Jews sealed We're going to see a little bit later that there was also two witnesses that were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ during this time worldwide. And over this first half of the tribulation period, we saw a number of what uh, people refer to as partial judgments of God, the one-third judgments, right? One-third of the sea, one-third of the land, one-third of the rivers as God was judging the very creation that mankind has risen up to be their God as they wanted to worship Mother Earth and ask for the mountains and rocks to protect them. And in all this, God is demonstrating his authority over the land, over the salt water, over the clean water, and over the sky. God is saying to the people who worship creation, I am the creator. (laughs) I am the one to be worshiped, not my creation. But in the middle of that seven-year period, Right at the three and a half year mark, it tells us that the Antichrist will then break his covenant with Israel, that he will stop their worship in the temple, and that he himself will enter into the temple and demand to be worshiped himself as God, an event known as the abomination of desolation. And it's at that time, at that midpoint of tribulation, where the Jews are then given over to be intensely persecuted by the Antichrist for the remaining three and a half years of tribulation a time also references Jacob's trouble. So it's at this midpoint of the tribulation when things start to escalate dramatically. Things start to get really, really bad. And it's at this time when the supernatural starts to seep into the reality as people are living. The supernatural becomes evident. Demonic activity becomes very clearly seen as Satan moves from working invisibly, working behind the scenes, which he has been doing for so long at this point, to then begin working overtly in overt activity upon the earth. And these judgments, because God is allowing these judgments onto the earth, it's like God saying to mankind, you want sin? You want a world without me? You want a world controlled and given over to your pleasures in Satan himself? You want unrestrained indulgence and all of that? Well, here you go. And all hell is unleashed. That's what we're going to be looking at today, (laughs) but first we're going to worship God because we, the church, know that we've been saved, we've been forgiven, and we know that we will be saved from this time of judgment, and we are still in a time where we have a gospel to preach to so many that they would be saved as well. 
And so we're so thankful and grateful to God for the salvation we have, the salvation um, from the judgment on our sin, but also to be saved from this terrible time of judgment that is coming upon the earth. And so with that, let's pray and let's worship God. Father, Lord, as we look at Revelation, it's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. It's terrible stuff. It's, it's horrific, Lord, um, what is coming upon the earth. But Lord, you gave it to us in your word that we would study it, that we would know it, that we would learn it. Lord, we know that this entire book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ, Lord, and every single letter that is in Revelation is something that teaches us about you. And Lord, I pray, God, that as we move through this terrible time of tribulation that is prophesied in this book, Lord, that we would learn about you. And God, what we do learn about you is how you feel about sin. Lord, that sin is not something to be dealt with lightly. Sin is not something that is to be just sloughed off, Lord. The supernatural world is real. You are real. Angels are real. Satan and the demons are real, God. And Lord, we should take all of that very seriously in our lives, that we would be people who live with eternity in mind, people who say we believe in God, we believe in Jesus, Jesus, we believe in sin, we believe in forgiveness, we believe in salvation. This also means, Lord, we believe in your word and everything that's in it, and we know this time is coming. So God, we just want to start as we're going to look at it today, Lord, praising you and thanking you, God, for the salvation that you have granted to us. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for the salvation you've given us, Lord. May we read these things and study these things, God, and be motivated to go out and warn those who don't yet know you about the judgment to come. God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We are in Revelation chapter 9, if you will turn or swipe there with me. Revelation 9 opens up with the fifth trumpet judgment. It's the first of the final three trumpet judgments, the first of what are, known as, are called the three woes at the end of Revelation chapter 8. If you remember at the end of Revelation 8 there, there was an angel or an eagle in the sky. It depends on how you interpret the word there. But some messenger of some type that declared, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the remaining trumpets are about to sound. And these three woes, that word woe is used to indicate that dramatically intensified judgment is about to come. And a part of the reason that these final three uh, trumpet judgments are dramatically intensified is that unlike the first four trumpets, these judgments now target people. If you remember, the first four trumpet judgments targeted creation. They targeted the, the earth. They targeted the land and the sea and the sky. But now the judgments that God is allowing to be poured out, uh, declared upon the earth, are now targeting human beings themselves rather than the natural systems around them. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of the woes, the fifth trumpet this morning, and the onset what it shows us of rampant demonic activity. So read with me in Revelation 9, verse 1. It says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. 
Now, that word star there is the same word that was used in the previous chapters when it says a star fell from heaven. And if you remember, that word in the Greek is where we get our English word asteroid from. And so the idea was that over the course of the first four judgments, there were meteor showers or asteroids that fell upon the earth and struck the earth, causing the judgments that we read about there. And this is the same exact word, but there are clues that here the word star is being used metaphorically um, to refer to a person instead of an asteroid, similar to the way we might use the word star to refer to a famous person, right? A pop star, a Hollywood star, a sports star, that kind of idea. And those clues are simply in, in what they say this star that had fallen from heaven to earth does. It says the key to the shaft of the abyss was given to him. So there's a personality, a personification associated with this star. In verse 2, it says, he opened the shaft to the abyss. And so this star has an identity, um, an identity and a personality attached to it. Now, when it says, I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, this also indicates a difference between the previous stars because the previous stars, which are actually asteroids, it says John saw them fall. He saw them in the process of falling to the earth as he was observing these judgments from heaven. But this one, he says it, it had fallen from heaven to earth. The idea there is that this Greek verb is in the present tense, meaning that he saw a star or a he who had in the past fallen from heaven to the earth and now still exists in that fallen state. That's what that present tense means in the Greek. So it means that the star had fallen at some point in the past and now exists in a continued state of being fallen. And so that raises the questions, who is this star, right? Is it some famous Hollywood star? Is it someone we know? There's a few different ideas that people have, but I believe it's likely Satan, the star who had lost his residence in heaven after his rebellion. And we read about that, him even being called a star back in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, where it says this, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. And so biblically, we know that Right now, today, in our timeline and chronology of living, that Satan doesn't live in heaven anymore. Heaven is no longer his residence, but according to Job chapter 1 verse 6, we know that Satan still has access to heaven because in Job chapter 1 verse 6, we read this. One day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and that's referring to the angels, and it says what? And Satan also came with them. So even though he doesn't have an address in heaven anymore, he can still visit. And we know that he visits there in Job to say, hey God, what about that Christian? Let me torment them, right? And so um, something that I hope he doesn't ask of me, but you know, sometimes I feel like he does. Now the idea here is up in Revelation chapter 12, when we get there, what we're gonna see in Revelation 12 is John gives a, a brief prophetic look back to the symbolic relationship between Israel and the devil. And when we get to Revelation chapter 12, what it's going to show us there is during this tribulation period, right about this midpoint of the tribulation, 
Satan is, is cast out of heaven permanently, that there is an actual battle that takes place. Michael the archangel leads this battle, and there is a war in heaven where the devil is, is permanently kicked out, so he's no longer allowed to visit. Now, him being kicked out of heaven and fallen down to the earth, and the, and the, the fury, because it tells us there in Revelation 12 that the devil is not happy about getting kicked out of heaven, and it literally tells us that he has great fury knowing his time is short. The fury that the devil has for being kicked out of heaven permanently is what we see unleashed here in the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet and so on and so forth. So the fifth and sixth trumpet record what I believe is the fury of the devil being kicked out of heaven. And what it says here in God's allowing this judgment to happen and this battle taking place and the devil being kicked out of heaven, it says he was given a key for the shaft to the abyss. Given by who? God. God gave him the key, and we're going to answer why in a moment, but um, what is the abyss? What is the abyss? If you have an older uh, translation, or I'll say traditional translation of the Bible, it may say bottomless pit instead of abyss there, but this place, the bottomless pit, the abyss was a place of incarceration for really, really bad demons who did stuff requiring them being locked up for all time. Um, the bottomless pit or the abyss is thought by some uh, theologians to literally be at the center of the earth, right? Because it's, uh, it's, it's described as a pit of great heat, and it's described being accessed by a shaft. And so, um, but I, I did a study on, on this abyss and the warfare and who I believe the spirits in prison are that are there in great detail when I studied, uh, when I taught through First Peter chapter 3. If you want to go dive into that in detail, the title of that study is The Unseen War. You could find it on our YouTube channel. So I'm not going to belabor all of that for this morning, but I will share this, that this abyss, this bottomless pit is referenced in 1 Peter 3, and it's called a prison because he references the spirits that are in prison. In Jude verse 6, it's referenced as a place of eternal chains in deep darkness, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it's referred to as a place of chains of utter darkness. And so it's a prison of some type, a place of incarceration. Now, it was a place that was feared even by the demons. Because in Luke chapter 8, verse 28, we read the story that when Jesus was in the region of the Gadarenes, there was a demon-possessed man there that, that, that presented himself before Jesus. And Jesus asked the possession, you know, what is your name? And they said, we are legion, if you guys remember that story, that he was possessed by a legion of demons. Now, in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, it says this, and they begged him, Jesus, not to banish them to the abyss, the demons, Please don't send us to the abyss. And the word abyss there is the same exact word we read here in Revelation chapter 9. But that just gives us some insight to this place, this abyss. You know, the demons begged them. They said, instead, please send us into the pigs. <laughs> just don't send us to the abyss. Send us into the pigs. And Jesus did that. And then the pigs ran off the cliff. And so this idea is that this abyss was a place of incarceration for demons that other demons were afraid to go to. It's where the really bad demons were. And these demons in Luke 8 begged him, said, please send us anywhere but this place. And so it was locked up tight by God. Again, if you want to get into the details of, of who's there and why, um, look up the study, the unseen war that I did. But the idea here is that this abyss, this place of incarceration where some really, really bad demons have been locked up, for centuries and centuries, Satan is given the key to open it up. Why? Why would God give Satan the key to let out 
the really bad demons? Well, I believe it's because it's what mankind wants. In mankind's rejection of God, God, we want nothing to do with you. We want to pursue our own needs, our own ends. We want to do whatever we want. We want no rules, no restrictions. Just let us just go wild. Well, the influence behind all of that, the Bible tells us, is our flesh, and it's the devil. And so, in a way, God's judgment upon the earth is you want that unrestrained, unbridled, just do whatever you want without restriction? Great, well then I'm going to let the guy who's behind all of that let out the ones who's really going to push all of that in your lives. And so Satan goes and unlocks this abyss. Now, the rebellion of mankind, what's behind all of this, Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 through 21 tells us. It tells us very specifically what the rebellious sin of mankind is uh, at this point in time, what the heart of man is engaged in or pursuing during this time of tribulation when God says, here you go, let the demons out. It says in Revelation 9, verse 20, they did not repent of the works of their hands to what? Stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. We see it today. We see it today with people going, oh yeah, we're, we're part of the church of Satan, and, and hey, if there's Christian clubs on campuses, the church of Satan should allow Christ, or Satan clubs on campus, and, and people that are openly and aggressively going, no, no, we worship demons, we worship Satan. It's, it's a thing today, and it's only going to get worse because it's a symptom of man's rejection of God. And so, him giving the key to Satan is like God saying, this is what you want, then I'm gonna allow you to have it. I think that's one of the scariest, most horrific things for us sometimes is when God lets us have our way. Because we don't know what's best for us. We just want what we think makes us happy or makes us feel good. And I think the worst thing that can happen is when God says, okay, you want it so bad, have it. Because then we experience all kinds of misery and, 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 and just bad stuff. But God says, here you go, Satan, here's the key to the abyss. Imagine, imagine if you will, that every prison worldwide holding the worst criminals that mankind has locked up, the worst of the worst, all at the same time, doors open, they're all set free, and go do whatever you want. Can you imagine that happening? The havoc that would take place worldwide in every society? Well, this is what's going to take place on a demonic scale. Because these criminals are not people. These criminals are a horde of demons unleashed to bring torment on mankind. But still, in his mercy, they're only allowed to torment mankind as far as God will allow. Look at verse 2. So he opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Now again, this smoke here we read, it's darkening the sun, and this is likely uh, what Joel prophesied would happen during the tribulation period. In Joel chapter 2, verse 30, it says, I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. And then in verse 31, it says, the sun will be turned to darkness. And if you've been with us through our study of Revelation so far, this isn't the first time that the light has been dimmed, the sun has been darkened, the moon has been darkened. There's numerous instances through this judgment upon the earth of God snuffing out the light during tribulation. And I just think that's just a picture of what is spiritually taking place in the heart of man. 
that the heart of man consistently says, we want darkness instead of the light, and God's going, okay, but you're not going to like it. No, give it to me. I want dark. Don't tell me what to do, God. I don't want to follow you. I just want darkness and sin. And we see this happening again here as the smoke is darkening the light. Verse 3, then the locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, and power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. So when you're reading this, or at least when I was reading this, you know, one of the questions that, that is good to ask is, are these real locusts, right? Are they real like earth locusts? We're familiar with locusts, right? And you've heard of the locust plague or locust swarms. They're these little bugs that, that can swarm in columns, you know, uh, hundreds of, of, of feet wide and tall, and they just decimate areas. Is, is that what he's talking about here? Is, is that was what was locked up in the abyss? Is our locusts that bad that, that God said we're going to lock you up in a spiritual prison that even demons are afraid of? Or are they possessed, mutated locusts, as, as some think, you know, like they're actual physical locusts that have demons inside them? Or is locust being used here as a term just to describe a type of demon? Well, we don't know for sure, obviously, right, uh, definitively, but I'm pretty confident that they're not actual earth locusts, that um, what is being described here is actually a type of demon or a demon that looks like a locust to John. Um, biblically, if you study the Bible, you'll see that locusts are seen often and used both literally as, as real earth locusts and also used figuratively. Literally, obviously, we read that John the Baptist in the New Testament, he ate them for food, right? We read in Exodus that there was an actual overrunning of Egypt during the eighth plague of locusts, actual locusts. But then figuratively, they're often used throughout the Old Testament to describe any great horde, an army, or anything that, that, is, that is acting like locusts, that's swarming through an area and destroying everything. And so um, the idea is that any, any group of something swarming beyond count, decimating everything they touch. And so I believe here it's likely a figurative uh, description for these demons that John has seen coming out of the abyss, and I believe there's a number of reasons for that. One, um, they're specifically given power like scorpions. Okay, locusts of earth, they don't, they don't have any power like scorpions, right? Um, one, they're told what they can and can't do when they listen, all right? So there's some type of sentience there. They're able to tell who has God's seal and who doesn't have God's seal as they go out to, to torment people. And then uh, earth locusts typically devour vegetation, and these ones specifically don't. And then on top of that, you have this really interesting description of these things in verses 7 through 11. So jump down to verse 7 with me as we look at these locusts, these demons that are let out of the abyss. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. Did you notice the word like there over and over and over again, right? It's called a similitude. 
It's John using the best words he can think of to describe what he's seeing. He's trying to give the best approximate representation of this thing, this demonic creature that he sees coming out of the abyss, and he's using things that he's familiar with to describe it, things that his readers might be familiar with. Now, before we jump into the specific description itself, you know, I just want to point out that, you know, oftentimes when we're reading stuff like this, that could be really interesting and weird and and we, we, I, we have to resist the urge to over-symbolize and over-spiritualize stuff like this. Um, I, I just think it's unwise to, to read something like this and instantaneously think of you know, some, some overly spiritualized thing. Now, there are some commentators that read this and go, oh, um, what he's describing is, a, is Apache attack helicopters in modern-day Earth. Now, I don't necessarily have a problem with that because if you were John the Apostle and God was showing you an an Apache attack helicopter, what would you describe it as? Because nothing like that existed in his world. So, So there's a possibility of that, but as I've mentioned before, good Bible study is you read it and you take it at its literal reading before you start to symbolize things and, and overly spiritualize things. And so, um, but the, the encouragement is just because you read something and it's fantastic or it's incredible or it's unbelievable doesn't automatically mean it isn't exactly what it says it is, okay? Sometimes it is, but, but again, just, just take that as an encouragement there. Some read this description of these locusts and they go, oh, this is just a metaphor for what the condition of a sinful life is like, right? This is a metaphor for the sinful life rather than this being a real eschatological event, a real prophetic event in the future. Um, But like I said, again, good biblical interpretation always begins with a literal reading and then you recognize figures of speech and grammatical sense and all that kind of stuff. So point being is I believe this account is an account of realities that John has given that John is actually seeing something and he's doing his best to describe it. So it's, uh, it's, it's like a horse ready for battle, and it has a face like that of a man, and, and uh, it sounds like this, right? He's doing his best to describe what he's looking at, you know, the same way that, I don't know, if we saw a dragonfly under a microscope and someone said, describe it, we would go, well, it looks like, uh, right? And we would start to use things we're familiar with. So Let's look at the description. He says, they're like horses prepared for battle, and the sound of their wings are like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Now, if you think of horses prepared for battle, they, they're, they're anxious, they're ready, they're snorting, they're stomping, they're, 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 they're armored up. He says, the sound of many chariots of horses rushing into battle, just that overwhelming sound of movement. You know, you've probably seen it in the movies, maybe. But the idea here is that there's this power, there's this anticipation that he is picking out here. Now, Joel the prophet used similar terminology to describe locust plagues of his day. He actually saw real locust plagues and he actually saw armies, but we know that Joel also prophesied about the tribulation period and he also used these sounds of horses in battle and the sounds like chariots to describe prophetically what I believe Joel was seeing as this demonic host in the future. And so this idea is that there's there's this overwhelming thunderous host of anticipatory anxious power, right? Then he goes, something like golden crowns on their heads. 
this could be just some weird formation or, or description, um, but something that, that was around their head with points and it was gold. But the idea then is the word he uses for crown there is not the crown of authority that a king would wear. It's that word referring to the wreath of victory, the kind of wreath that um, an, Olymp- an Olympian was given when they won. And so again, the p- picture here is that they will be victorious in their task. It says they have a face like human faces. That's just creepy to me, um, right? Can you imagine some demonic locust coming up to you and like, <laughs> you know, like, whoa, step up, bro. Um, but yeah, the, the idea is, is a face like human face. So, so the idea is two eyes and, and a nose and a mouth and probably expressive to some degree, but unnerving. Teeth like, or hair like a woman's hair. Culturally in the day, women had long flowing hair, and so the picture here is that on its head it had some type of long flowing uh, mane of some kind. Teeth like lion's teeth. Well, if you think of lion's teeth, what do you think of? Sharp fangs, right? Tearing fangs, devouring fangs. A chest like an iron breastplate, sturdy, solid, hard to crack. And then stingers like a scorpion's tail, and then tells us that the torment from the stinger is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. And so the idea is that these demons have the power to hurt, to bring pain, to cause great pain and suffering. Now that word for stinger is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 15.55 metaphorically when Paul said, where death is your sting? Where is your ability to cause pain and suffering? And so the stinger that these things have gives them the ability to cause pain and suffering. And, and I don't know if any of you here have ever been stung by a scorpion. I hope you haven't because what I read about it is it's a pretty miserable experience. That there's basically two types of scorpion stings. One is not so bad but hurts. But one is, is it causes the, the victim to writhe on the ground and foam at the mouth and grind their teeth in agony. It's extreme, excruciating pain. And that's the idea that we're seeing here that these demons have the power to do. And remember, these demons have been locked up in this abyss for a very long time, and so they're eager to cause as much pain and havoc as possible. And then verse 11, it says, They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon or Abaddon, and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, this is another reason why I don't think these are natural locusts or some natural locust plague, because natural locusts have no king. They just go by instinct. But on top of that, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27 specifically says, locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks, right? So, but these demonic creatures, they do have a king, and it's the king, as their king, is the angel of the abyss, now, when it says angel of the abyss, um, there's some different you know, ideas of who this is, um, but that word of there is, is that word that means from, okay? So the angel from the abyss. And so some people go, oh, this angel from the abyss, it's Satan. He's the king of the demons, but, but Satan's on the outside of the abyss unlocking the door. So the angel from the abyss, the angel inside the abyss, is likely somebody else that isn't Satan, um, but some other demon of rank and authority, and we know that's possible because the Bible speaks of that, that there's principalities and powers, and so there's demons of different rank, and I don't know, this one might have been the highest ranking demon in Satan's army that had been locked up this whole time. We don't know, but his name is Abaddon and Apollyon, which both mean destruction or destructor, which speaks to the nature and purpose of this demon and the army that he leads in Satan's army. But the overall idea of all of this is that these demons are a real, visible, 
swarming plague upon the earth. And that word plague is exactly what they are called in verse 18 and 20 of Revelation chapter 9, that they're a plague. And the idea of plague is something that is widespread, something that spreads everywhere and to everyone, and these demons are a plague just like that. Now some read this and they go, wait a second. It said that these demons were, were told not to harm the grass. And you might say, I thought all the grass was burned up in the first trumpet blast. Go back to it and you'll read that. All the grass was burned up. Well, yeah, time has passed, okay? <laughs> if these judgments are chronological, which I believe they are, time has passed. This judgment's being progressive and escalating one after the other simply means that the grass was burned up during the first trumpet blast, but it doesn't say it was permanently destroyed. So some of the grass at least has grown back at this point, but they were told as these locust-type demons, don't destroy the creation. We're not doing that anymore. We're going after the people. And so it tells us in verse four, if you go back there, that they can only harm those who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. Now again, with the seals and the trumpets and the bold judgments being looked at as progressive judgments, we saw between the sixth and seventh seal that there was a break there where the 144,000 Jewish evangelists were specifically sealed on their foreheads with God's seal. We see that these were sealed, and then in Revelation 14, we see that they are protected and saved all the way through tribulation and the judgments of tribulation. So naturally, it would say that the ones who are sealed, those 144,000 evangelists, are protected from the sting of these demons, the torment that these demons bring. However, in Revelation 22, verse 4, it also tells us that the great multitude of all of those who are saved through tribulation also have the name of Christ on their foreheads. And the name of Christ is specifically referenced as the seal of the 144,000 in Revelation 14. So it could be referring to that all of the saved people on the earth during that time, both the 144,000 evangelists and everybody who gives their life to Christ during this time are protected from these demons. So these demons are allowed to torment people for five months. Now, the language there for five months is, is literal. It's not a metaphorical reference. It's, it's a literal five months. And it's interesting because the first time God judged the entire world during the flood, guess how long the water prevailed over the earth? For five months, right? So there's no reason to see this five months as being symbolic or metaphorical. It's an actual five months of time, possibly the first five months after the midpoint of tribulation. But, but the point being is it's a terrible, terrible time. Um, and all this supernatural activity will, will just unnerve the inhabitants of the earth. It will just mess people up because we see in verse six, and I know I'm jumping around here, but follow me. Verse six, it says, in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. That's a scary verse. That's a scary verse. Things will be so bad, it says there, that people on the earth will see no future. They will see no hope. And they will want to end it all. People in that time, due to the torment, the judgments being unleashed on the earth, will, will see death as a blessing. Just, just, just let me die. But what does it say there? Death will flee from them. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. They will want to die, but death will be inaccessible. Even that will be taken away from them. 
Now, when it says they will long to die, it means that they would have an intense desire to do so. Or the other idea is to lust after it. So in the same way that they have lusted after their own pleasures and lusted after their own way and their own will and lusted after all the sins and debaucheries and everything that God has said, don't do that. And they said, no, forget you, God, we're going to do it anyways. The judgments now being allowed to pour out on them create a situation so bad where they start to lust after just death. Just let me go. Let me escape from these judgments. And the idea is this continual desire to find death specifically over these five months. Some read this, and what they say is during this time where these, these, these locust-type demons, this, this horde of horrific angels are unleashed on the earth and causing this pain, this torment, like being stung by a scorpion, people will try to commit suicide to end it. And they won't be able to. Now, they won't be able to is interpreted a couple different ways. Some think that people are going to try and commit suicide and even do something that should otherwise take their life. But instead, they will continue to live despite the injuries, but with the pain. I don't know how that is medically possible, but we're dealing in the supernatural now. And I've heard people talk about, yeah, someone will jump off a building and they won't die. And they'll put a gun to their mouth and they won't die. But they'll live with all the pain and the torment. Others interpret this as, as what's going to happen during this period with these demons um, stinging people is that the demons and the torment, they're going to drive people to want to kill themselves, but the demons are going to keep preventing people from doing it. So in the moment where someone says, okay, I'm just going to pull the trigger, the demon stings them again, and, ah, and they're writhing on the ground in pain, and they're like, I just want to do it. And right before they do whatever it is that they're going to try and kill themselves through the torment, the, the demons keep stinging them and stinging them and stinging them and just preventing them from the relief that they're seeking in death. Um, we don't know exactly what this means here, but what it says is they will seek death and they won't find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Terrible time. Terrible time. And then verse 12 tells us the first woe has passed, but there are still two more woes to come after this. You mean it's going to get worse? It's going to get worse than that? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The sounding of the fifth trumpet will unleash hell on earth. And I believe what it's doing is bringing people a foretaste of what eternal, eternal damnation is going to be like. You want to reject God? You want to live for yourself. You want to live for your own will, your own way. Well, God has been telling you that there's going to be judgment for that. There's going to be judgment for that, and that judgment is forever in hell. And people are like, whatever. We don't believe it. It's not real. I'm going to do whatever I want. And as people are pursuing their own will in their own way, we see our world getting more and more debauched. We see our world getting more and more perverse. People want to celebrate, yay, slavery exists no more, while they ignore the, the pandemic of sex trafficking. People want to celebrate the victory. We could do whatever we want, and we've come to a place of being able to express ourselves sexually and, and, and in all these ways and, and ignore the fact that people are going, yeah, and so we want to do things with kids and, and all this disgusting stuff. And our world is just getting darker and darker and darker. And, and the church has been in the world this whole time. We are in the world this whole time saying, God is going to judge sin. 
but he has offered salvation to you if you would call out to him for it. And sadly, some are going to deny that all the way to this point in the tribulation. And if the misery of those five months is so terrible, imagine what hell forever will be like. That's what's taking place here. And yet many will still refuse to repent. Still refuse to repent. Why? Well, John chapter 3, verse 19 said this. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Mankind wants to live in its sin, wants to live contrary to God no matter what. And one of the ways they try and make it easier for themselves to do so is saying, the devil's not real. Demons aren't real. God's not real. And the warning we have for them is, yes, he is. Yes, they are. Selfishness, greed, sexual perversions, homosexuality, adultery, lying, stealing, on and on and on and on. Mankind wants to live its own way according to its own will, according to its own wants. And some in our world today even try and create a God of their own imagination and go, no, God isn't that way, he's this way. And, and, and if it's contrary to the word of God, that God doesn't exist. You have made him up because the word of God is very clear on who God is and what his will is and what his desire is. The Holy Bible, it's the revelation of who God is and how we are to live according to that. And it's about his will, his way, not ours. And if we disagree with him and his will in his way, we're the ones that are wrong, not him, because he is God Almighty, creator of the universe. I think God does everything he can to bring people to the light to bring people to salvation. At the end of Revelation chapter eight, he sent a creature out to the world shouting, woe, woe, woe to the world. And I believe he does that out of mercy. To give people the opportunity to repent, to believe in God, to turn their lives over to him, to live his will, his way, because it's the right way, it's the best way. But if you choose your will and your way without Christ, the end will be suffering. It'll be torment. It'll be anguish. And this might be why the Bible gives 600 or so warnings about hell. This might be why Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in Scripture. This might be why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. Heaven and hell are real. God is real. So is the devil. Angels are real. So are demons. The devil is a deceiver and a liar, and he wants nothing more to convince you that what God says is sin isn't really sin. He wants nothing more to convince you to keep living in it because, well, after all, there's no consequences. That's what the devil wants, so that the end for you will be destruction and torment. But there are, at the time of his grace and his long suffering, consequences to come when all of that runs out. When his patience comes to an end, and when it does, his judgment will pour out on this world. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, you need to.
you need to. People say, no, the end isn't coming. It's coming. I read an article the other day, the World Economic Forum, one of the directors or the leader of the World Economic Forum said, you know what? In a matter of years, AI is going to rewrite a Bible that is universal for the whole world. Hmm, sounds like a one-world religion, doesn't it? Coming from the World Economic Forum, oh, one-world economy maybe? The end is coming quickly, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is an opportunity for you to know him before judgment falls. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that we have your word. Even these difficult passages, Lord, we're grateful, God, for the warnings you give us in your word. God, those of us that have heard your warnings and been drawn to you and, and put our faith in you as our God and received the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation that you grant to us, God, we're so grateful that we've received that. But Lord, there's still work to do. And you're calling all of us who have received salvation, who have seen the light, to go out and share that with the dark world because judgment is coming. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would take that call seriously. And I know many of us do, God, and I'm so grateful for that. Lord, that we would be people who live in the light and share the light, teach the light, preach the light. God, that people would know the love of God, the love you want to offer them in salvation. And Lord, we know it's tough and we know it's difficult. And we know it's hard. And Lord, we know the world doesn't want to hear it because before we were saved, we didn't want to hear it. But God, someone, some way, somehow got the message to us. Lord, may we be vessels for someone else to bring them the message of the gospel. Lord, we know there's torment and suffering in the world today, but it is nothing like what is coming. And if you're in this room today while we're praying, heads bowed and eyes closed, and the warning of what is to come is speaking to your heart, God is speaking to your heart about your need for him, about your, your need for salvation. God is speaking to you about how you've been living your life, choosing to reject God and do everything about your own self and your own pleasure. And God is speaking to you today. You realize that that is wrong. That is sin. And without Christ, judgment is going to fall upon me. If the Spirit of God has spoken that to you this morning and you're in this room, I just want you to raise your hand right now where you're seated and say, I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you too. God is speaking to your heart. He loves you so much. He wants to deliver you from your sin, deliver you from the power of sin, enable you to live a life that glorifies God that is good and right. He can do that. He wants to do that. But he'll only do it if you invite him in. Anybody else? You want to receive Christ this morning? Just raise your hand where I could see it. If you're online, obviously I can't see you online. But let us know in the chat there if you want to receive Jesus. All right, I see you too. Those of you that raised your hand here in the room, those of you online that want to receive Christ, I want you to just pray with me right now. 
This is a prayer to just confess your sin to God, to confess your faith in who he is and what he did for you, and to invite him into your life. The Bible tells us, God, God's word tells us that, that as you come to him in faith, he comes into your life, truly. And so pray this prayer with me. Say, Lord God, I believe in you. I believe you are God. I believe that I have lived contrary to your way. I believe that what you say is sin is sin. And I believe that I have committed sin. God, I ask you to forgive me. I believe that you came to this earth, that you lived on this earth, that you died on the cross, that you rose again from the dead, dying for my sin, paying the penalty for my sin, but granting me new life. I believe. Thank you for loving me so much that you would do that for me. Thank you for loving me so much that you would speak into my heart, that you would warn me of judgment to come, that you would offer to me forgiveness and salvation. Teach me how to live for you. Teach me how to be who you want me to be and help me learn how to warn others of the judgment to come. I love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. If you prayed that prayer this morning, whether you raised your hand or didn't, um, we, we have these little packets we want to give you. It's a gift from us to you. It's called a New Believers Pack. Um, but it's just something to help you establish this, just the habits of this relationship to get into a habit of reading God's word and prayer and worship because this is all about a relationship with God. It's a relationship you have with your creator now. It's a relationship that has changed your life. It will continue to change your life. It is a relationship that is just, <laughs> it's more important than anything in this whole earth and you're gonna be blessed. And so either come forward after service or go out the back and just ask for a new believer's pack and we'd love to give that to you. If you're online and you receive the Lord this morning, just let us know in chat. We'll mail you out one of these new believer's packets because we just wanna walk with you. This isn't about joining a religion. It's not about joining a church even. It's about joining the family of God. And that is what matters. That is what changes everything. And so guys, I. I'm just, it's, it's a little tough studying through Revelation. I, I'm not going to be uh, uh, shy about it. This week is I've been a little bummed all week and I couldn't figure out why. <laughs> I was like, kind of like, man, I'm a little depressed. What's going on, you know? And then, and then last night I was reflecting on the study and thinking about what's going to happen. And I was like, I think it's bumming me out. <laughs> but then God spoke to me and he goes, you think it bums you out? And I just realized, wow, there's so many people that don't know him yet. I gotta get some tracks, I gotta, go, <laughs> I gotta go tell people so that they would have the opportunity to be saved before judgment falls. And so, um, but we're gonna keep studying through this book as tough as it is because um, God wants us to know about all of it for a purpose. And that purpose is that he would be glorified in our lives, that we would see him as king of all, king of glory, king of creation, king of our lives. 
and that we would be motivated to be subjects of his, people of his, to go out and tell the world about him. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.